Hey everyone, this is Ramona Milano, otherwise known as Francesca Vecchio, and you are listening to Do South by Southeast. I am Catherine Bruyer, and I am listening to Do South by Southeast. I'm Tony Craig, I play Jack Huey on Do South, and you're listening to Do South by Southeast. I wish this podcast would carry me away But while talking to Squeak here And Michelle get a word in edgeways Record over a bottle of rum on a dock of Southampton Bay To South That is what we're talking about To South Saddle up my microphone Get deep in Baker To South by Southeast. Hello and welcome to Due South by Southeast. My name is Detective Squee. And joining me, as always, is uh, three of the four usual hosting team. Dottie Baker's uh, away this week, but. Uh, Instead, joining us are Civilian Aid Nicola and Little uh, Benton. I nearly forgot his name there. That, that was a bit weird. And Mounty Michelle. I for a minute I thought we were going to say Little Mounty Michelle. <laughs> no, that's Tiny, tiny. Mounty Michelle. You actually said three out of the four. Yeah, it's actually just joining me. Oh, joining you. Yeah, joining me. It's three out of the four. So, uh, this week, we're showing already how professional we are for any new <laughs> listeners who might have been attracted by our celebrity interview this week. Uh, we were honoured uh, for me and Nicola. Unfortunately, Michelle can make it and Nicola had to leave the interview halfway through, but we'll get into that in a minute. But uh, we were joined this week by uh, Ramona Milano, little uh, Francesca Vecchio herself. And I, I just... I. I'm ever astounded when any member of the Due South team agrees to join us for one of these episodes. And all of them have been wonderful, but, you know, it's like, literally, like, she's part of Ray's family in the show. So, like, you know, that's just... I don't know. Like, actually, I, I don't know. I mean, they've all been very special and been very amazing in their own way. But this this was another just, just really wonderful chat... And the reason why Nicola had to leave was because, well, yeah, do, you, do you want to tell Nicola? Oh, no, nothing nothing in particular, but Benny was being a dick. Yeah, basically, <laughs> this is what was really just, I mean, at the time I just asked a question, which you'll hear during the interview, about the new play that uh, Ramona's doing. And it went to a sort of like little serious moment. And she was given this really uh, thoughtful, very clever answer. And you'll hear this... <sighs> in the background as Benny just loses his poop in the middle of this really serious kind of like answer because I, I love doing these interviews that we can go to a very serious place much like Due South very funny place we we run the gambit and uh, the, the things she's got to say about the show were really amazing uh, but yeah to have Benny just just 
going nuts during it. Well, it's about par for the course, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes, Benny. Yeah. So uh, we are going to, we, we don't always, when we go on interview, but we are going to do a, a little order of business before we, or two orders of business before we go into the interview. So first of all... Yo, ho, ho! We're getting drunk as hell! Tell me what rum are we drinking, Michelle? Well, I mean, Michelle, you can't really tell us what rum we were drinking in this case, because you weren't there. No, I wasn't. I was really upset to not be there. Damn work. Well, I mean, uh, Nico's being good and not having run that occasion. But uh, <laughs> I, I, I had a little slug of, uh, I believe it was um, Oak Cup while I was talking to Ramona. That's yeah, that's a decent rum. Yeah. Nice. So not a new one to the podcast, but that's what rum I was drinking. And the other little audio, order of business. Audio of business? Audio. You can make up words. It's Again, funny. professionalism. So, well, I mean, there there is only one mini Mountie we can induct in this. And it's, of course, like, uh, there's there's a few ways you can become a mini Mountie for anyone who's listening. You can either write into the show uh, through our social media. Uh, uh, Michelle, if you would like to just really run through how they can write into the show. Yeah, there's a couple of ways. So you can get in touch with us. Um, Are you looking at the cheat sheet? I don't have a cheat sheet. I was getting our list up. Okay, go on. How can I write? How dare you accuse me of cheating, Sal. How can uh, I write? <laughs> email. You can get uh, through to us from juiceofbse at gmail.com. Or... What are we on Twitter's, uh, Nicola? Uh, Juice South by South East. Nope. At you South BSC. There you go. That's one. <laughs> it's also on Instagram. And what about on Facebook? Due South by South East. Yeah, that's correct. Yay. Yeah, you just go to the group there. Yeah. Uh, and uh, you too can be a mini Mountie. We like it if you give some, some kind of reason. But if not, that's fine. But we're not really that picky. We're not very fussy and literally involves you doing nothing other than letting us know. And the other way is by being guest on the show, you automatically oh, become yes. a member of the Mini Mountain Club or commenting on anything online or, you know, really, it's a very flexible. Bumping to us in the street. Yeah, you know? really. It's, uh... Or sometimes just being born. Yeah, yes. yeah. We, we do like to add family members on this as well. Like, yeah, especially new little babies and pets. Yeah, but... saying, maybe we should extend it to if you'd like your pet to be a Mini Mountie. Yeah. Yes, definitely. We are totally up for that. Well, because you know, Ramona was absolutely lovely, and just in case Ramona is listening, because she did very kindly offer to when we put this up, uh, plug this on her social media and everything. But uh, in case she is listening, it really you have to do nothing for this. It it involves nothing. It's just list basically we've got, which is Mini Mountie Club. It's a a silly thing we start when we start the show. It's all for funsies. And we wanted to get up to 100, which I think what we're we on at the moment. We're close now. We're up to 94. Wow. Ooh. So in at 94 is Ramona Milano. Yay. Thank you. For I, mean, I realise I don't have a pen to write down. Could be third. 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 Oh, third. Peltonella pens. They're flying at me now. Flying. <laughs> so, you know, we, we um, yeah, we, I mean, just I'm amazed. Our third guest who's actually been in Due South. It's just mm-hmm. awesome. It's really a dream country. And, uh, this will be slightly out of order with the Mini Mountain Club as well. Not that I'm sure anyone cares, but uh, because there's an episode which we recorded, uh, which I haven't got around to editing yet. So this is going to go out before that one. And then we're going to record another one tonight. So there's going to be two in the chamber. So hopefully we'll have three coming up in a row. But it's just getting time to edit, if I'm honest. But uh, we, we can't wait any longer to bring you my interview with the wonderful, amazing, I swear she hasn't aged since she did the show, Ramona Milano.
Looks like a nice sunny day where you are. How are you doing it's there? Beautiful. It's great. Yeah, it's it's gorgeous here. Uh, we're having a beautiful late September summer, so it's so nice. And uh, yeah, I can't complain. Surprisingly, we you? are. Yeah, surprisingly, we are here in the UK too. Yeah. Well, also, what time is it there for you guys? Seven? Is it seven I've just gone six. Oh, it's six. Oh, six. Okay, right, right, right. Oh, right. So I'm sorry, my video is on, but for some reason it's not working. Uh, I had my laptop back from the shop a little while ago, so I probably haven't worked out that particular kink. Yeah, no worries, no worries. <laughs> okay, uh, well, uh, my name's uh, Ian. I go on the show by the ridiculous name Detective Squee, because we've themed it all around you, South. Um, one of my dogs is here, uh, Benton, literally named oh after, gosh, after the character. So funny. Yeah, uh, we've got our civilian named Nicola here. He's my girlfriend. Hello. Hi, how are I, you? Yeah, I'm good. And yourself? Not bad. I've got Charlie here too. This is Charlie. Oh, I was going to ask. Hi. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you saw him. Charlie's. Oh, here. yeah. Can you just flash the camera to him again? I'm just showing uh, Nicola. Yeah. Oh, he's so cute. He's very cute. Oh. Charlie. Hi, buddy. Oh, he's so cute. How old is he? Charlie just turned three in August. Oh, wonderful. Uh, yeah, usually we'd also have uh, Michelle who can make it tonight, who's Mountie Michelle. Uh, we're, we're very, very sad around here. And uh, our other dog, uh, Dottie or Dottie Baker, who's actually uh, with my ex-wife. She spends half the time there, half the time with me. So, uh, oh, okay, okay, nice. Oh, that's great. Just as a little rundown. Uh, we usually, uh, essentially every week, just uh, drink a bottle of rum and uh, watch some due south and chat about it. <laughs> and, Sounds like a good yeah. weekend. And uh, you're the, the um, third of the Due South uh, cast to, to uh, grace us on the show. So we've had uh, Catherine Bruyere and, oh, uh, yeah. and Tony Craig has um, uh, given us nice. Skype. Great. So. Yeah. I'm sorry I missed uh, the uh, celebration this summer, but it was just such a crazy time. And, you know, I was trying to remember a million things. So that was just one of the dates that slipped my, my mind. But uh, I would have loved to have contributed and and spoken to somebody ahead of time i just just didn't get around to it to be honest there's really no other reason other than things were busy well actually i mean we we're uh, friends with the guys who run it but we're actually not affiliated to that we just um we've interviewed uh, uh, john wright who was uh, yeah. one of the people arranging it uh, absolutely lovely guy he's, he's told us a few stories i actually got a few stories from him about you at the cons in previous years oh okay okay in fact uh, Let's go straight for it. So, um, well, my first question was going to be about, like, uh, the dog in your bio. So I take it that's uh, Charlie there. Yes, that's Charlie. That's very yes. adorable. So you've already covered that, uh, just because we're dog obsessed on this show. Yeah, yeah. But, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, when I wrote to uh, John, just asking me if he had any kind of, like, stories of you at the previous conventions, he had this yeah. to say. Uh, she's been to a few of the conventions, and she's just awesome, wonderful lady. And like Catherine Bruyere, is just as beautiful as ever. She certainly steals the show and has an infectious positive aura around her. Uh, he said, I could ask you about the Fango Fangirl moment from the convention in 2014. She may remember that. I'm not sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And there's another one I'll ask you about in a second. But do you remember that? He showed me the video. This was very adorable. I do remember that. That was hilarious. I was speaking with someone. I was on the panel and someone had um uh put up her hand she was adorable i can't remember her name and she said she had a fantastic british accent yep. and she asked me 
um, a question and she said, I'm sorry. I, she said, I'm sorry. I don't want to go all fango on you, but you know, and I said, what? Cause I thought it was some new term. And I said, what's, what's that? What's fango? And she goes, no fangirl. And I'm like, Oh, I thought you said fango. And I got really excited because I thought this was a new term. And I was like, fango, I'm going to start using that. And I started implementing ridiculous sentences and it just caught on. And it was just a great moment, but it was hilarious. I had, I was so captivated by her accent that I wasn't even hearing what she was saying. I was just so taken by, you know, the allure of it and thought it was something new. Well, you, you did exactly what I'm sure I do with all Canadians who I meet. Yeah, you, you were, I think you were so excited that you just learned a cool British bit of slang. Yes, yes, exactly right. Yeah. He also said, uh, I remember in 2010 uh, at the gala dinner, where after the group photo, she wanted to have a photo taken with all the people under 30. Yes, yes. I was so, it's wild, right? Like I was so um, touched and shocked that there was this new surgence of yeah. Ducell's lovers who were like not even born when the show had started or maybe they were babies. And I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe there was this huge, huge surge of fans that were there. And I thought, how old are, how old are you? You don't even, how old were you when Do South was even on? Were you even born? So I was so shocked to learn that, you know, we, we were developing this whole new crowd of, of youngins who were just like loving the show. And I, and that's nice to know too, that it still translates to, people of that generation, right? Because as things yeah. get older, you know, you remember them with a certain nostalgia, but that doesn't necessarily translate to the next generation. So that was kind of cool that it did. So, uh, yeah, I was, I was very insistent that I take a group shot. With well, I think the I, thing, I don't know how much they liked it, but <laughs> the thing which I, I'm, I've really been, uh, I mean, surprised even, like, I expected to still love the show watching it back. Because what I loved about doing this um, podcast is each of us haven't seen the, the shows for co- you know, a few years, certainly. And I knew I'd like it, but it was just how kind of fresh the ideas are and how tongues there. There is certainly a lot of 90s to it, which we also really love looking back on. And all the fashions yeah. and race shirts are amazing. Yeah, right, right. But then you get like just these storylines, which are just timeless. It's just so well written for that, I think. Yeah, I guess so. Because, I, I, you know, I never, I can't say that I fully appreciated that at the moment, right? But now, I mean, it's been 25 years. And yeah, they still mean something to people and they resonate with people regardless of, like you said, time and generation and you know, it's, it's awesome. It's awesome that people are still connecting to it as, as deeply as it did when it first aired. So that's great. Well, in a minute, I do want to take you back to the sort of like start of all. But before we do, uh, I, I would be remiss if I didn't put the plug straight up front that you've got a new play coming out, I believe. Yeah. So I'm, I'm flying out in just over a week, I guess, about a week and a half. I'm, I'm flying out to Thunder Bay. I'm going to Theater Magnus to do... Um, a play called This Is How We Got Here by Keith Barker. Uh, very excited to do it. I've been doing a lot of um, I've been doing a lot of comedies, a lot of two-hander comedies, and this is a far cry from that. This is a four-person show, um, and it is around the uh, suicide of my oh my dog's gonna freak out. 
He just saw a chipmunk in the corner and he just <laughs> bulleted to the corner to go chase him oh, down. Please say you have an OCD. I'm, I'm so glad if you've got an OCD dog there too, because ours is just trying to dig through our sofa at the moment as we speak. Oh, really? We've yeah. got a sofa in our podcasting room and he just is determined to burrow through it. Yeah. Well, this guy is, you know, they were bred to hunt, right? So if he sees any, any squirrels or chipmunks it is all over so and there's no holding him back so this may happen from time to time so excuse that um, oh that's fine uh but uh, yeah no it's it's a great play uh sorry and i was saying it's uh, it's uh, it's involving it's sorry surrounding the death it's around to uh, oh my god i'm not saying anything properly right now it is Focusing around the aftermath of the sudden death of my 17-year-old nephew who took his life. And so that's um, what the story is about. And so, and how everybody's coping with that. Like, the relationship of the parents who've lost their son. Uh, it was my nephew, so my husband and I dealing with that. My sister, who is the, the mother, and how her and her husband are dealing and not dealing with that um the relationship between my husband and um uh, the father of the 17 year old who were who had become best friends and how they're not really dealing with that and it's so it's it's a lot of it's it's a wonderful um dive into humanity and how we put on all these arm. We put on this armor to sort of protect the other person from getting hurt, but in doing so, we're not really connecting or allowing the other person to break down because of our discomforts. And so, it's it's great. It's a great exploration into that. So um, I'm really looking forward to to working on this. Um, and this is just coming off the heels of another pretty intense. Um, three-person play, a one-act play that I just finished doing in the town of Stratford, Ontario, um, with a fabulous um, a director by the name of Doug Beatty. He adapted an um, English version of a play by a famous Sicilian playwright named Luigi Pirandello, and the one-act play was called, um, in Italian, it was called La Morsa, which means the vice. And... Um, he really modernized the storyline in terms of the what happens to whom as opposed to the way it happened in the original. Right. Um, and uh, I thought his version was very was a lot more powerful and and more poignant um, to the effect of um, what comes apart in, in, in the play. Um, and it was great. So that was also another really dramatic, very dramatic, um, one act play, which I said just was a perfect, um, um, diving board to go into this next one. Um, in, um, at theater Magnus with the one I'm going to be doing up coming up. So it was great. It's, it's nice to have had these back to back. Uh, prior to that, I did a, two-hander at the beginning of the summer at Globus Theatre in Bob Cajun and that was a total comedy which was a lot of fun and that was called The Numbers Game um, by John Spurway and that was really fun and then last year I had done another two-hander by famous uh, Canadian playwright he's kind of like our 
Neil Simon, I guess, uh, uh, named Norm Foster. And Norm's got a, a ton of fabulous uh, comedies. And so I did a two-hander Norm Foster play last summer called Storm Warning. And that was wonderful. So I've really been enjoying my uh, time get, getting back to my roots of stage and getting more into um, to doing plays. I've really, really been enjoying that. And I'm hoping to do much more of that moving forward. Wow. I mean, it, it, what I'm particularly struck by there is it sounds like you always go for something different, like which, of course, actors are want to do. And uh, does that always keep it fresh? And it can be difficult kind of like uh, pivoting or, or at the end of a play's run, which obviously is the same material every night and finding something new in it. Is it nice to have something new to attack? Yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, a definite uh, longing of actors is to constantly be um, coming up against something challenging, to constantly be trying something uh, new on, to constantly be... Um, yeah, I, I would say it's more about the challenge. Um, you know, it's just so fun. It's so fun to go from one extreme to the other. So, um, yeah, I, I definitely think that, that I'm not alone in that. I think most doctors um, feel the same way. And uh, it's just been, it's been such a great, I don't know, it's just been such a great challenge for me. Like I've, after having done TV and predominantly TV, but some film, but predominantly TV for, you know, the last 25 years or so, just really sinking my teeth into something in, in theater has been, oh, so fulfilling. Like, I just, I love it. And I really want to be doing, like I said, more of this as I, you know, as moving along, moving forward. That's great. And uh, yeah. bring it back to the uh, current play. So, you know, obviously, whenever you're dealing with something around the uh, very evocative uh, subject of suicide, it's kind of a great responsibility. Like, uh, A, is do you, do you feel a responsibility of kind of telling a story like that? And B, is there anything you have to do to kind of uh, keep yourself from going into a dark place while doing, you know, going into a role like this? Yeah, good question. Um, I, I don't know because we haven't started rehearsals yet. So right now I'm at a very different stage than I will be, you know, yeah. when, when it moves further along and becomes more real, I guess. Um, hmm. I mean, I'm trying to answer that as best as I can, not having exactly stepped in with both feet yet. But I, I feel like, you know, the rehearsal process is so incredibly uh, important because that's where all the discoveries are made. That's where there are there are little there's different keys for different rooms that are unlocked, and you unleash that. And then once you find that, you start really exploring and within that space. And then it's almost like a muscle that gets worked out. And once you find that once you learn where to tap in and you know it's like driving right like you know how far you can press your foot on a pedal to, to slow down uh when you're coming up to another car you know how to turn the wheel when you're trying to make a smooth turn you know, that all becomes 
very instinctual for all of us when, when once we've become um, uh, seasoned drivers. And for someone who's learning, you know, it's very jerky and it's very, you know, it's you don't know how to control that yet. So I think that that's the best uh, sort of parallel that I could give um, when you're in the rehearsal process and you're trying to find all of these places within you to keep it as truthful as possible without getting to a place where it is going to be emotionally taxing as a person. I think you want to find that as the actor, it's going to be very authentic and believable to the audience, but where you can find those places to work those motions and muscles and that foot on the pedal where it is seemingly very smooth and very believable to everybody who's viewing it, but you know exactly what you had to go through to get it to that point, right? So I don't know if any of this is making sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. I, I think it's actually a very, uh, very honest and yeah. uh, very kind of good way of looking at it as an actor that you are going to kind of like have some stop starts when you're when you when you're learning to drive that particular vehicle of a play, and you're yeah. trying to like you know come to sense that part. I think it's kind of really you know it must help you to have that awareness around you that okay, I'm going to make some mistakes as I'm learning this, and that's okay. Just I just have to keep on getting past that, and that's a really good place to be. I think you know, and I, and 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 to your point, I I don't. I've really gotten to a point in the last couple of years of my life too, where I, I have um, a bit of an issue with the word mistakes because I don't feel that anything really is a mistake. I think everything is an opportunity for, a, for a mindset and moving forward in a lesson. Right. So it's not, I don't look at it as mistakes. Cause I think for me anyway, when I associate what I associate with the word mistake is that there's a certain level of regret attached to that. And I don't think that that is the way for me personally to approach anything because there's no room for regrets. If you have regrets, that means you are, um, there's almost a, a little bit of a lack of a belief in the way in which you approach something or what you got out of it. And that's, it should be the total opposite. So I, so I don't really, I kind of see the word mistake. Charlie, you want to come up, puppy? Come here. Okay. Um, yeah, so, so I don't really, I, I tend to shy away from that word a little bit more so now. And I, I see it more as like, uh, it's a free space to sort of uh, play and learn. You know, it's it's sort of an actor's gymnasium, I feel. I like that. You know, so that's, uh, that's where you get to explore. I think yeah. ex- exploration and discovery are, I think more positive, um, useful words for the than, than mistakes. It kind of reminds me. No, no, I like it. I like that's it. I, that's how I approach it. That's a very nice attitude as well. And I, it just sort of reminds me. I think it was Steve Jobs who uh, came up with the term success training. Like I didn't uh, do anything wrong. I learned uh, how. Like I, I learned a, a number of ways not to do something so I could learn how to do it. You know, it's like, I'm probably butchering it very badly there, but that was kind of the idea behind it. No, it it totally makes sense. And that's, and that's exactly what I teach my own children, but as well as the, the kids that I work with, like when I'm teaching drama workshops and stuff and, you know, and teens are often very self-conscious and nervous to get up and, and, you know, be silly or come off a certain way, or, you know, they're so worried about the way they look and self image and being portrayed in a certain light. And I always tell them like, 
the only way that you're going to look foolish is if you don't commit. You have to commit. And whatever happens is amazing. Don't don't ever look at it as like, oh, you know, that was dumb or that wasn't great or I shouldn't have done that. It's all part and parcel. Those are little nuggets. Those are great little nuggets that get you to where you want to go. Those are not things to be embarrassed of because it's really easy for people outside of the arena to sit back and go, pfft. That was stupid. But unless you're in the arena, actually having the guts to take the sh- to take the chances, it's all it's all worth it. It's all gold, all of it. Right. You're not maybe yeah. not necessarily for the final performance. You're not going to use all of those things. But all of the, those trials and tribulations to get to where you're the final performance. That is all gold. They're all magical lessons. They're, they're all things that you're learning along the way. You, you can't possibly deny the importance of that. You know, they're, they're, it's way more important than getting it right. The discovery and the journey is way more important to me than actually like doing it perfectly. Doing it perfectly is like kind of the boring part. Like you've arrived and you go, oh, okay, I figured it out. Getting to the point of figuring it out is the fun part. That's great. I think. Yeah. No, no, that's, that's a really, as I say, a really great way of looking at it. Uh, and just before we move on, uh, so, you know, again, where is that play? Uh, where do they buy tickets? Uh, is, is, are they available yet? No, I don't think they're available yet. Oh, I could be wrong about that, but I don't think so. But I know it's on Theatre Magnus's website, which I believe is just theatermagnus.ca, I think. I will verify that for you. Uh, but I think it is. And the play, again, is called This Is How We Got Here by Keith Barker. And I know it's running from, we preview October 24th, we open October 25th, and we uh, close on November 9th. Sounds like there's a really good uh, theater scene over there in Canada. Oh, it's a great theater scene. Yeah, a great theater scene. We've got a lot of theater here. Yeah, yeah, I had some great things from Catherine Brie. We we sort of touched on her theatre work. Uh, she worked earlier on with uh, Eric uh, McCormack from uh, Will and Grace. Yes, yeah, we yes. talked about that for quite a while. Um, yeah, uh, so get, getting uh, onto to, to your younger days, uh, uh, if I if I may be as rude to use that phrase, but uh, even younger than you are now, we'll say. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so when you started as an actor, can you t- talk us a bit about that and kind of like because uh, you're you're fairly. Pretty young when you started on Due South. What was kind of the journey leading up to, to getting the job there? Yeah, so when I started on Due South, I think I was I think I was like twenty three when I did the pilot. Um geez, the journey leading up to it. I mean you know, it's maybe, maybe a bit about staying as an actor. Sorry, I've I've been very vague in my question there. You what? Sorry. No, sorry. I was just saying. I was. Uh, I was very vague in my question. So, what was it like staying as an actor and kind of you know those earlier works? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, it's so funny because at the time, you know, I felt like it had been forever, and I was like, oh, when am I going to catch my break? And like feeling like so impatient about getting work, but it was, you know, looking back, it was pretty quick. Like I graduated from the Etobicoke School of the Arts when I was seventeen. Uh, which was uh, an arts high school here in Toronto. And I was, um, uh, I had a double major in musical theater and in drama. And then I left there and I went to college and I studied drama. And uh, I started working like right out of the gate. And at the time I was considered, you know, what was called a, a triple threat. And I was singing, dancing and acting. 
So I was doing gigs, singing, dancing, and acting, and I was working for industrials, and I was traveling, and I worked on cruise ships, and I worked at a, a famous theme park here called Canada's Wonderland, and I, you know, I was very young, and I started fresh out of high school. I was 17 when I got my first job, and um, I was making $3.15 an hour. I still have my contract, doing five shows a day, working with all these cool people who were in their 20s, who were living downtown Toronto and had roommates, and I thought I was the shit. Like, I just thought I was so cool because I was working with all these people were so much older than me and like you know I just thought I had landed I just thought I was like this is exactly where I wanted to be and I was so happy to be working with all these people and working for peanuts but I couldn't care less couldn't have cared less because I was happy I was doing exactly what I wanted and I was having fun and it was great and they worked us like dogs (laughs) (laughs) it was so fun um and then I guess like a couple of years later, I got an agent. I got my first agent when I was 19, David Karnick Management. And uh, he started sending me out on auditions and uh, TV auditions. And I started taking a bunch of classes in and around Toronto, all these TV film classes. I worked with the late, great Michael Shirtliff. Michael Shirtliff came to Toronto a couple of times and did uh, a few major workshops. And I worked with him and got to know him very well. Um, and there were a few of us that Michael took aside and sort of lovingly referred to as uh, his angels, Michael's angels. And uh, and uh, it was a blast, man. Like I had a really, really good time in my early 20s. And and then I went away to, to work on a cruise ship for six months. And I remember getting back and doing a, a, a one last gig, I think, here um, at a little park that doesn't it doesn't even exist anymore called Ontario Place and I was doing a a, a, like a live show at Ontario Place and I remember thinking to myself after I was done with that and I thought you know the singing and dancing has been lucrative and it's been good for me and I've gotten to travel and and I've had a lot of fun and I've made some money but I really just want to focus on the acting because the acting is where my true heart and soul and passion were at and the singing and dancing was just because I could um and so that's when I really fully immersed myself into acting and I kind of hung up my dancing shoes and put that aside and um and I really started to go out for a lot of roles and it wasn't far late like when was that I must have been about 21 22 when I sort of made that decision and then as I say at 23 I landed the pilot so it was pretty short thereafter um soon thereafter that I I landed the the pilot for Dussault and then the pilot got picked up and I was made into a recurring character and then I'll never forget I was in Los Angeles and I went there for pilot season trying to sort of, you know, hey, I'm going to go to LA and meet some people and make some connections. And I was really trying to go there and lay down some roots and, and, and just kind of go and figure it out there and, and, uh, and meet some people when I got the call from Paul. Paul Gross had called me and said, listen, we just got the green light and we're moving forward. Um, and uh, we'd really like for you to uh, come back and be uh, a regular role on the show 
And I was like, oh, man, I just got here. Like, <laughs> I don't know, man. When, like, when do you want me back? And he said, well, like, as soon as you can come back, you know, because we've already started shooting. So I flew back and I started and, um, and it was the best thing I did. I like, we had, we had such a great time and I loved it. I loved every minute of it. That was one of the, one of the most positive experiences of my career was, was working on that show. And I also think too, because it was one of the last times in Toronto where I would say, um, production value was as was as lucrative as it was uh and you know things really changed the 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 climate really changed in our industry um and toronto was very affected by that and i feel like at that time i was sort of at the peak of it um without realizing that that was the peak and that things were going to tip off after that and i remember the late fabulous adored him so much George Bloomfield saying on our last day of shooting uh, on that set before we before we uh, wrapped he said he looked around and he said you know guys I've done a lot of stuff and I've been around for a very long time and he said this is as good as it gets and I'll never forget that yeah. and I remember I was 20 seven i was 27 years old right yeah because it yeah, was four years of, yeah yeah for sure it was march because i was pregnant everything is is based on my pregnancies and and the kids right so yeah i was pregnant with mitchell so yeah i was 27 so and i remember i remember thinking to myself when he said that there was something instinctive inside of me that went ding and I was just, it was like a ping where I just went, you know what? I think this is as good as it's going to get for me. And in terms of, in terms of production value, I have never personally been a part of anything ever again where it was as full as my experience on that show. Yeah. I've had other experiences where I, they serve different purposes and, you know, cause people will say to me, Oh, what's the best role you've ever done? It's really hard for me to answer that question because everything served a different purpose. So, and I, and I got a lot from different productions because of different reasons, but I would say that show, I haven't experienced anything that was as, wide of a net if that makes any sense to you yeah wide. I, yeah. yeah i mean i think then the wonderful thing for me is there's um sort of everything's on the screen there so like uh even though it wasn't a, a low budget show by any means uh for instance when they were shooting it they they made so many locations so you know one location so many places and you feel like that kind of works for the writing and everything else like nothing's wasted in it you know there's everything yeah. is so well used to make the most of it yeah that, that's how i feel about you south ready yes for that. yes it was just we had such a great team and it was 
I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how to explain it to you. It was very full. It was very layered and full and rich in quality. So I feel, I mean, from like the biggest things to the smallest things, to the details. And so that's why I feel that I haven't been able to personally be a part of anything since then that's been, um, that could compare. It, it tick off every box, you know what I mean? Yeah, and I, I don't think there's any, there's nothing you can really compare it to, like, which really fits, you know, so you can make some kind of, like, Northern Exposure was a bit due south-esque in the fact that it's in Canada and it's got that kind of wacky sense of humor, but nothing's really, like, due south. It, it's its own yeah, genre. it's very different. It's very different. You're right. The content as well was very different from, there's been a lot of shows where it's been replicated and, or, you know, similar tones. That one was very different. It kind of stands on its own, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, there's a few yeah. things which I wanted to ask you about the show. So, like, uh, early on, just getting those scripts, because, as you say, it's such a, a, a unique kind of, uh, not just sense of humor, but style to do South. Like, what was it like reading one of those scripts for the first time and being introduced to that world? You know... You know, youth is wasted on the young, right? Like I, 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 that's such a true expression because at the time I got to tell you, like, I, I really didn't appreciate it because I, because I was so young and I was at the beginning of my career pretty much, you know, like I had done, I had done some stuff and, but I, I was, you know, I, I was pretty pretty new into the scene. And, um, and so I just kind of took it for granted, to be honest with you. Like, I just kind of felt like, oh yeah, yeah, this is <laughs> Yeah, all scripts <laughs> will be like this. What's that? <laughs> oh, all scripts will be like this, no yeah, problem. Yeah, this, uh, this is just the beginning, right? Like, this is always going to be the way it is, if not better. Like, it's just going to get better and better from here. And, and so I, I really didn't, <laughs> I really didn't appreciate to what, extent uh i i really didn't appreciate what i what i really had to be quite honest with you i was happy i wasn't ungrateful or anything like that but i don't think i had the wherewithal to understand at that time i don't think i had the experience i don't think i had the wherewithal i really don't think that i was i was in a very different mindset to really understand uh what I see now. So my viewpoint is very different now from what it was then, you know? Um, and I hear a lot of people being asked things like that, you know, like you look back at very popular shows and they'll say, Oh, did you guys know what you were getting into? Did you realize how popular? And you know, how could you like, I don't, <laughs> I, I don't know. Like when I, I don't know. I think there's some things that you read and you think, oh, wow, man, this is amazing. Like, this is going to be really big. And then sometimes you might be right about that. And sometimes you could be way off and it goes nowhere. And you're like, wow, I was, I'm really surprised because this came off the page. Like, this jumped off the page. And I thought yeah. for sure that it would be responded to in the, in, in the same accord. And it isn't. Um, so I, I don't think there's really a way to know that. And I think different things resonate for different people at different times in their lives for different reasons, you know? So... I, I, I don't know. Like, I, 
I don't think I had the maturity or the wherewithal or the experience to really understand how unique and um, impactful this was going to be and what I was a part of. I I really don't. And, you know, you have that arrogance, too, at that time uh, in your life as well, when you're starting off where you're like, oh yeah this is just the beginning like I, yeah. <laughs> like you, just, you know you just think that it's just gonna go up and up and up and up and up from there so you know you you really don't know you really don't know and you're not thinking in those terms so yeah i mean that's as that's as honest of an answer as i can give yeah. you about that well the thing which really is as well strikes me is right from the get-go it was how Seriously, they'd obviously taken casting, casting every character, writing every character to be really kind of fleshed out. Like, so the pilot, which, you know, God knows, Gordon Pinson, as, as Fraser's dad, gets killed in the first episode. And they've hired Gordon Pinson, and he is amazing. And he's just, uh, it's so striking as an actor in that. And, you know, it was only episodes into the first series that he kind of became a reoccurring character. So, like, I mean, uh, it does does get back to you in this question, I swear. But uh, it was kind of like the, the fact that I guess your character uh, could, to begin with, have been a very kind of like occasional character, but it was very well served, very well written for, and it very soon snowballed into a regular character. What was it like going on that journey and, and also playing someone as big and brash as, as uh, Fran? Like, you know, how was that? Oh, so fun. I, I mean, I had a blast. I had a blast. And I'll tell you what I did recognize at that time. This was pre-Netflix, right? This is pre-everything that we just had network television at that time. There were no, I don't think there were any, you know, webisodes or anything like that. This was just network television. And at that time. We could only just VHS it, let alone have all the DVDs and stuff or Netflix. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I got to tell you, I don't think there were a lot of phenomenal female characters at that time on television. There really weren't. I remember looking around me at that time. And one thing I I did have the wherewithal to do was go, oh, hang on a second. I saw Julia Louis-Dreyfus on Seinfeld, who is my idol. And I, I was like, okay, her character is phenomenal for a female character. Who else? There really wasn't a whole hell of a lot at that time. Now, I remember Friends coming out. And Friends was kind of premiering around the same time that Due South was starting. And I remember seeing Friends and thinking, okay, this is going to present a bit of a problem with us in terms of the ratings and competition. And I remember going to Paul and saying that to him. And he was like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, but yeah. I remember... Who remembers that show? What's that? Yeah, who remembers that show? Yeah, I don't think it did anything. Yeah. I don't know what happened to them, but it was good at the time. <laughs> um, but I remember I remember uh, being very aware of that show and saying, oh, okay, this looks like some, you, you know, this looks like a great show, a great cast. And there were some, there were some funny uh, female characters on that show as well. But I remember there were not a lot of fantastic female characters on television at that time. There really weren't. There weren't a lot of funny, quirky female characters at that time. Um, And I remember being very, very proud of that, that I was able to have 
this hilarious, boisterous <laughs> character of Francesca. And I loved that they kind of like gave me free reign to just make it as ridiculous as possible. Like, I, and I and I don't mean to make that sound like I made it uh, a caricature of her. No. That's that's not what I'm saying. It's just that I had I had such a good time with it, and Paul was so wonderful about that. Paul was he would laugh at everything and say yeah let's do that and he would do like rewrites right there he would get ideas and we would joke and i'd go oh my god you know it'd be hilarious if you know dot 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 and he'd go oh my god let's do that so he was really open to suggestions and ideas and that was one thing that i really appreciated about paul that he was never he wore so many hats and really kept that show afloat and 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 successful and and had so much to do obviously with the success of that show um and really kept the integrity of it um without compromising anything but i loved that he his ego was was never um just to check sorry are we talking about haggis or gross uh gross sorry i mean i'm sure this is true of both but uh, you know what, Paul Haggis, I don't think was involved anymore at this point. Oh, sorry. Uh, I, this is when when Paul was uh, Paul Gross had sort of taken the reins. Got you. Um, and and maybe Haggis was still involved as like a consulting um, uh, a producer, a not our creator. Uh, I, I don't know because I didn't ever deal with him, so I don't know what it was what the deal was behind the scenes. Um, sure. But I'm talking about dealing uh, specifically with Paul Gross when Paul was wearing all the hats, he was like acting in it and, and, you know, start like he was the lead character starring yeah. in it. He was writing it. He was directing it, he singing, was producing it, you know? Yeah. Involved with the editing. He was involved. Yeah. The music, like everything. So, uh, and, and that's one thing I always really dug about him and really appreciated was that his, he, he never took himself so seriously where he was like, uh, yeah, no, you know, he was so open to ideas and to, and making the show as um, funny and as interesting as it could possibly be. He never was like, you know, offended that the idea wasn't from him and that it was from someone else. He would run with it. He would, he would totally build it in and, and have a really good time um, uh, doing that. So I, I really loved that about him. You know, I really will always commend him for that. I, I really appreciated that he was able to uh, approach everything that way and, and have that, uh, um, just that attitude about it, you know? Yeah. I mean, there was uh, when you were talking on the panel just before the, uh, fango fango moment, uh, you were talking about, uh, playing, uh, Fran and how she always thought that she was doing the, the, her intent was always the right thing. And one of my favorite examples of that is, is in the vault episode where she's trying to, uh, kind of, uh, I think she's trying to st stall for time for them, but like she doesn't know what's happening in the vault is that they're filling up with water and actually drowning. And so it's like, like the one, the most purely right, like surely she's right in that instance. And even then like fates conspired against her, but she's oh, doing yeah. the right thing that's, in that moment. That was the greatest thing about her that I, I, I feel was that, that's why I said I, she wasn't a caricature version no. of herself, but she, but it was so outrageous and funny, but, but so, I think the reason people loved her so much it was because it wasn't done for the sake of being funny. It was it 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 wasn't. That's what I mean by avoiding a caricature version of herself. She wasn't doing something just to get to get the want want laughs. 
she truly believed in what she was doing, right? Like she was very righteous in her standpoint. So, um, and that's what made it funny. And, and it was, it was always from a soulful place. So I think, I think that's why so many people took to her and, and felt that she was always, it was always heartfelt and sincere because that's truly where, where she was coming from. Yeah, yeah. There was there was never anything like it, it's it's so easy with shows and yeah. You mentioned Friends there, and I think they did this a few times. Of what I didn't like in that show was they sold out their characters a few times for a joke, and Juice right. never did that. It was always like this is who the character is. Like you know, the, the Francesca's character was a moral good person. Yeah, she may have um, uh, been outside social norms sometimes, like you know, with the way she behaved and stuff like that, but she. She was always a good person and they never strayed away from that in the writing. And that's yeah. what's so good about it. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. That It was never something done for the sake of just doing it without keeping in alignment where what she had already established. So I, I really appreciated that. Um, and, you know, her, her level of awareness was, uh, was very insular. So she, of course you know, the outrageous things that she might have done or the lengths that she had, she went through to, to achieve something were crazy to some other people, but it was never done out of like, oh, I don't really care who I have to step over or uh, who's going to be affected because this is what I want and this is the end result for me, so therefore I'm going to do it. It was never within that vein. It was always just because her level of awareness was not there. So you only know what you know, right? So if yeah. if that's where her boundaries were, then she operated within those boundaries. That's all, you know? Yeah. So yes, it was, it was very true to her character for sure. And even though uh, Paul Gross' character was the, the hero character, I think uh, what's wonderful is probably more of us have been Francesca one time or another rather than been, you know, who's been Benton? You know, no one's been sure. that guy in real life. Uh, sure. You know, we've all been Francesca, like uh, lusting after someone who we fancy who doesn't necessarily think of us that way or even realize that's what we're doing. Of course. Yeah, that speaks to everybody, right? It's always the person who's tripping over themselves that we can all identify with. I don't think anybody can deal with... Um, perfection and the funny thing the the thing that I really liked about their relationship was that he was such a you know do-gooder like so so deadly do right but was so was so unaware outside of his scope of vision right yes she had total awareness of what he didn't but she but she of course never operated in the place that he operated from so it was such a nice yin and yang between the two of them both both very morally conscientious but just operating from completely different ends of the page right so it, it was just fun it was just fun to see the two of them you know, in a, in a tango together. Like it was just interesting. That's a nice way of putting it. And I'm yeah. going to allow myself one fanboy question. Do you think they did or not in that episode? Do I what? Do you think it happened between them in the uh, episode where it's not quite clear? <laughs> I'm going to allow myself that one fanboy question. <laughs> uh, you know, you know, I mean, at the time, I was really hoping that they were going to, I was really rooting, man, for Francesca <laughs> yeah. to, you know, 
get this piece of the cake, right? <laughs> come, on, come on, man. Let her have this. Let her have this. On behalf of all Francesca Vecchio's everywhere, yep. let her have this. But, you know, I don't know that talking about, you know, drawing outside of the lines I don't I think that would be too far outside of the lines for someone like Frazier I don't think that he would do something like that even even if just for his moral compass and loyalty that he had to Ray do you yeah, know what I, mean? I know I know yeah okay you're giving the honest answer not the one I wanted to hear like I've been I as I say I, I was the Francesca Vecchio more than certainly more than the Ray yeah, I'm on your team about yeah, it. I was yeah. really rooting for that as well. But, you know, that would really be compromising someone's character just for the sake of the storyline, right? And I don't think that, I really don't think that that uh, Frazier would have ever done that. No, no, I, I just had to hear it from Francesca herself to believe it. Okay, you're right. Well, yeah, you're, yeah, yeah. So yeah. <laughs> you're hearing this more from Ramona. <laughs> <Yeah>. uh, <laughs> I Good point. Know what would say that. I think maybe she might have been delusional enough to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know. But but let's just leave it at that. I don't know. No, no, that, that's a really great answer. It's just, yeah, not the one I wonder here. But but it's yeah. true. Uh, so uh, you've, you've already kind of like uh, uh, teased into this, but it really does feel like, especially talking to John about the conventions and seeing you guys all up there after so many years, it really feels like there was definitely a family on set and still to this day. Uh, could you just talk a bit more about that? And uh, you've talked about Paul maybe, you know, working with David and some of the other uh, cast members. Yeah, uh, it, it was definitely my home away from home. I loved it. Um, we were super close. Um there was no drama. There were no divas. We all got along. I mean, everybody like the, the crew, the grips, the, the, the DOPs, our directors, our hair and makeup people. Like we all got along, um, uh, to, um, uh, Rick. Is that was, was that his name? Rick, the, the guy who owned, uh, the dog who played deep and Baker. Right. Rick, right? I, I don't Rick? know. I think it was Rick. Anyway, we all got along, all of us. It was a great environment, a great energy, great place to work. Um, I, I loved it. Um, yeah, it, it, I don't have I don't have any negative memories at all. Like it was wonderful. It was wonderful. And you know, I and as I say, like you know, Paul Paul had a lot to do with setting that tone because you know he could have really. Um, made it more of an uptight environment uh and he didn't uh, and as i said he was very open to input and um you know i i remember i jokingly uh jokingly but with a point was making a stink about uh sort of tongue-in-cheek about the fact that uh why how come only certain people had director's chairs with their name names on it and the rest of us peons, you know, were just kind of given folding chairs. Like, what the, what's the deal, man? What's what's this all about, right? And and of course, that was also my age, right? I don't know. I don't know if I would have done that today. Maybe I would have. I probably would have. But I was. I, let's say I was a lot more open to doing that at that time because you know, when you're twenty 
whatever. Um, and so I remember I brought that up and I did it in a very, you know, like tongue in cheek kind of way, like, Hey, what the hell, man? What's this all about? You know? And, uh, and it started this whole thing and it was really funny. And, and Paul never like made me feel any particular way. He never came to me or took me aside or embarrassed me in front of anybody or, or, uh, said anything like, Hey, you know, listen, chicky, uh, why don't you just take it easy there? And, you know, or, or never. And in fact, uh, I guess it's true that the, Oh, sorry. Someone's doing work in their backyard. That's okay. Um, what, what, what's the saying? The squeaky, the squeaky the wheel gets the oil. It, you know, yeah. I, I guess it's true because we actually did all end up getting chairs with our names on them that we got to keep. Uh, so that was really funny that that came out of it because of my mouth. Um, but you know, it was great. Like it was, it was a very fun environment and it was creative and collaborative. And, you know, I'm not a person who, you know, listen, man, I, in my personal life, I've been predominantly around men, right? Like I, I grew up with a brother and I had all male cousins here. Like my, I had a lot of female cousins in the States, but growing up in Canada, I had all first cousins were all boys. I had two boys. When I married my husband, he had nephews. We had, like I'm surrounded. And the one thing that I loved and appreciated growing up and being in the environment with boys is while they may be irritating in many other ways, there's no drama, right? There's no drama with boys, predominantly speaking. And so I'm not a person who digs drama outside of on screen, on set, on stage. That's it. Those are the three places I love drama or it, like in literature, like when you're reading. Yep. Those are the only places I love drama. So I really, really dug the fact that there was no drama on set ever, ever. It just, you went to work, you did your, your thing. We all got along. We went out together many times, hung out, went to dinners together Bo Starr was amazing. He he was such a great guy, full of stories. We all went out to this. I remember we used to go to this restaurant that Bo told us about in Yorkville called, um, oh, my God. Yeah, Fiera Mosca. And uh, it was so good. And, and we'd, we'd hang out together. Like, we had, a, we had a blast. It was great. It was great. We had a really great time together. So, those are my memories, right? Not bad for your first, like, major job, you know? And I know actors who have horror stories, uh, actors who've been on, like, some pretty major shows, and they look back with very sour, bitter feelings towards it. And I think that's awful. I think that's awful that their experiences are so, you know, so awful and peppered with with such such a sour taste in their mouth. Oh, you know, good, yeah. Especially you know, females working, uh, you know, especially uh, the further you go back, the worst it can get for female actors and some of the things which happened, obviously, which well, have been brought to light more recently. Know, I remember working on a particular show uh, a couple of years ago, and uh, I remember that the lead of that show was telling us some stories backstage about a huge show that he had been on a few years prior. 
and uh, and they were all female uh, stars. And he was one of like the hunky men that was on this particular show. And he told us some some gossip and he was like, oh, my God, man, it was brutal. And he said and, you know, and he had the wherewithal to to, to tell us. And, and I thought, bang on, because he said, you know, he goes, the saddest part to me as an actor is he said, this is what we all crave as actors is to have this type of success. And these women all got the success. And it was a hit show internationally, globally. And he said, and you know what? neither of them, none of them enjoyed it because they were so caught up in the bullshit and the, and the drama. And it was so toxic. He said, and now it's gone. It, oh, it's over. It went by like a flash and neither of them are really working anymore. And he said, and, and you know, who knew at the time that this was going to be the pinnacle of your career and that it was going to be so wasted over toxicity. Right. And that's the thing that is so horrible to me is that I have been so fortunate in my career, whether I've worked on, you know, really big production quality things or little things, but everything I've worked on has been quality. It's been quality work with quality people with people who were really in it and committed and cared about the process and who gave a shit and who were artistic and intelligent and collaborative. And like I've been really fortunate that I've worked with really great people. Like I really have, I've had great experiences and I've learned from all of them, you know? And so I may not have had a, a I don't know, Hollywood kind of career that people go, yeah, her career has been fine. Like she's done stuff, but it's nothing outstanding. I may not have had an outstanding career compared to people who've had uh, Hollywood blockbuster um, credits. But I got to tell you, like as a working artist, I've been really fortunate. It's all been on my terms. I have never had to compromise myself. I've never had to work on anything that was horrific <laughs> in fact my most horrific experiences would i'd have to say we're all commercials because it's all you know for money right like commercials are all about the money right you're all it's you're selling yourself for the money mind you i'm not I, that has its that has its place as well and i'm not, certainly not going to to bash that either because when i landed that rogers campaign back in 20 when did I land that? 2010, 2010, 2011. Oh my God, that paid off all my debts. I like was able to totally renovate my house from renovating my house. I was able to sell my house when the market was crazy and sell it over asking, which I never would have been able to do years prior living in Bolton. Bolton was one of those towns and places where people said, you know, your house is never going to appreciate the way it does anywhere else. My house went through the roof. I remember my next door neighbor was one of the top real estate agents in that area. And he said, you'll never get what you're asking for. And not only did I get it, but I got 10 over asking and was able to leverage all of that to move here where I am now, which is where we wanted to be. So all of that happened because of a commercial. And, yeah, you know, and so, for, for those yeah, of us outside of uh, of Canada who don't know the Rogers campaign, what, what, what was that? Uh... Oh, Rogers. 
it's a telecommunications. Uh, it's like, um, uh, do you know, like AT and T in the states? Yeah, 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 yeah. BTI. Like yeah, it's like that. So I was the Rogers mom, in and they had a Rogers family, and I had a contract, and I was and I was contracted with them for a few years, and uh, it was like winning the lottery. I made a shit ton of money from doing that. Now, was I artistically fulfilled? Of course not. Was I micromanaged on set? Absolutely. Was I enjoying what I was doing? Not particularly. But did I love the people that I worked with? Yeah. I met some great actors who played the guy, David Lewis, who played my husband, um, the, the daughter, Natasha, who played my played, who played our daughter. Fabulous. Like these people were people that I would have never met otherwise. Right. They were both from Vancouver and Adam, the guy who played my son. They were all from Vancouver. They were all flown into Toronto. I was the only Toronto actor. They were all from Vancouver. So, you know, I met these people because of that experience, right? I met some, uh, I had some great experiences doing that, but mostly it was money. It was like money. I just, I made a shit ton of money. And as I said, all of these things in my personal life were able to come to fruition for my family from the leveraging that happened because of that commercial. So commercials definitely have their place. I'm not denouncing that, but certainly from an artistic fulfillment, soulful <laughs> point of view. No, I mean, they, they yeah. definitely, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a different uh, ball game. Right. But um, that's the only place that I would say, you know, it, it, it has nothing to do with my artistic development, but it, it served its purpose. It definitely served its purpose. So I've been very fortunate in my career. I've had a lot of, you know, one thing led to the next that led to the next that led to the next that led to the next, right? They've all been experiences. They've all been explorations. They've all come to me at the right time in my life where they were very meaningful and purposeful and, and they illuminated certain things. It's, it's not coincidental that they all came to me at certain times where I was either dealing with or struggling with certain things in my personal life where it was very symbiotic when everything sort of came together. And so, uh, you know, one sort of fed the other. So yeah, it's very interesting how everything's kind of been very um, fitting for me, like on both, both sides, my artistic side and my personal side. Look, as, as a fellow dog lover, I know it must have been a gift to have this wonderful first role and you get to play alongside the wolf. How, how amazing were the Diefenbakers? And I'm just so impressed by, like, any dog on a show is really well trained, but the amount of things those dogs did, like barging down doors and all that sort of thing, what, what was it like to be on set with, with the wolf? So I, I will tell you my, you know, no one's very... Um I got to tell you, animal lovers are not very happy with my responses because mine are not gushy responses over okay. the dog for a couple of reasons. One, I, Francesca, if you remember, I, I didn't have a lot of interaction with the dogs, right? Like I really yeah. didn't. My scenes weren't about that. So I really didn't get to interact with the, with the, the dogs too much. From what I remember from uh, the times where I did, they were very incredibly well-trained and well-behaved. So again, I took that for granted and just kind of figured this is the way it always was because I didn't know any better. That's just the way they were. And I was like, oh, cool. He's done a scene. Okay, next. Like we just kind of moved on. Also at that time, I really didn't have a spiritual connection with dogs that I do now. I had right. had a few dogs growing up in my life, 
but they were not, I didn't really have the appreciation for the spiritual beauty in dogs that I do now. To me, my dog was my dog. It was a pet. And I, and I, I didn't see it on the same, I didn't, it didn't have the same value for me that they do now. It wasn't until, when did I get my dog? We got our first Yorkshire Terrier, Toby, in 2014. It was November of 2014. I was actually shooting a movie for Netflix called Full Out. And I met a woman on set because we were shooting at a gymnastics um, a studio in uh, a gym in, uh, in Oakville. And I met a woman there who was on the set and she was a coach and she was also a breeder. And she told me that she had, she was breeding Yorkies. And I was like, Oh my God, let me see. And she was showing me pictures of all these beautiful, adorable little Yorkies. And I said to her, Oh my God, if I show this to my kids, they're going to freak because we've been actually talking a lot in the last you know, year or so about possibly getting a puppy because We've never had one since I've had kids. My husband and I had a dog before we had, we had a Jack Russell Terrier named Diva before we had children, but we had to get rid of her actually when, after my firstborn was son, uh, was born uh, because of uh, problems that she ran into. And it, it's a long story. And I said, so we haven't had a dog since then. And um, we've actually been talking about it now that the kids are older and would be able to help out. She said, oh, you should come by and see the dogs. And I said, oh, no, 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 no. I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that I because I'll fall in love with it, which is exactly what happened. So I said, you know what? She said, oh, you and, and so every day she would give me a follow-up report. And she'd come and she'd show me more pictures on her phone. And she said, you better hurry if you want one because we're, <laughs> we're selling them. And I said, you know what? We're actually not available until next Sunday. Um, I said, that's because she lived in Hamilton. And I said, we can't get to, we were still in Bolton at the time. I said, we can't get to Hamilton until next Sunday. She said, oh, I may not have any more by that point. I said, well, you know what? If you do, you do. If you don't, you don't. That's life's way of letting me know that it's either meant to be or not. So, of course, come next Sunday, she had one left. And it was the rent of the litter. So, we, my in-laws live in Hamilton. So, we went to go see the dog on the way to going to my in-laws place for, you know, a traditional Italian uh, Sunday pasta dinner. And uh, on the way to my in-laws, we went to go by her place and see this beautiful little Yorkie. And we all totally fell in love with him. And so, of course, we nabbed him. And uh, my sons and I, I told them they could take the day off the next day from school. So the next morning, we went and went to pet stores and grabbed all the pet things and rolled up our carpet in the living room and got rid of it and puppy proofed the house and got the crate. And we drove to Hamilton the next day and we went and got this beautiful little puppy and his name was, we named him Toby and he was, he became the light of our lives. And that's when I fell head over heels in love with the power of dogs. And I had never, ever experienced that power until we got Toby. So I really didn't appreciate Diefenbaker when I was on the set. I really didn't. I had a lot of spiritual journeying to do before I got to that point. So to me, he was just a 
He was just a pet on the set. And I was like, oh, cool. Okay, great. Moving on. Like I did, I really didn't have much value other than that. I, I would have been all over him today. If, you, if I was working with him on the set today, I would have been totally distracted today. But at yeah. the time, I, I really didn't. Well, yeah, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean. I used to deride people for being very like, oh, we why don't you train that dog like a person? Now I've got to them and I'm just the worst for it. So I, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah, it has to be the right time for you. Uh, the other thing I wanted to ask you about, like since doing the show, especially uh, talking about the episodes and we talked to a lot of uh, a few Canadian celebrities and, and that sort of thing. We've got really into the Canadian culture. We love it all. We're both Canada files, if you will, over here. So uh, what was it like having something which was so unapologetically uh, celebratory about Canada? And and what I think G South does really well is it does, in the way I like I like to think that um, British TV does about our own culture, it takes the mickey out of it as much as it does celebrate it. And that's still celebratory. So uh, could you t talk to us a bit about that? I think you've hit it right on the head, which is, uh, you know, that's Canada's way. We never take ourselves seriously. It, we never shove our identity down anybody's throat, including ourselves. What is great about Canada is that what we stand for is um, being open to be whoever you want to be. And that's what we're, that's who we are. We celebrate everybody's roots and we don't have to shove any particular identity down anybody's throats we don't need to use our flag as a pacifier uh we're very self-deprecating in a tongue-in-cheek kind of way you know i love I, I can't remember which olympics it was i think it was the winter olympics that were in vancouver maybe i can't remember years ago and i remember wayne gretzky was one of the um i don't know if he was like the hosts or whatever i can't remember but they picked him up in like the back of a pickup truck you know at, at, during the opening uh, sort of ceremonies and it was just so typically canadian right like it was we're so laid back and fun and and i love that i love that about ourselves that we don't feel an insecurity or a need to have to grab anybody by the throat and pin anybody against the wall and go this is who we are and you're going to be this too okay if you want to be canadian this is who we are there's none of that yeah. it's just an understanding and uh and it's a true freedom and that's what I love is that we don't glorify any of our politicians. They are just regular people. And we don't need to look up to any one particular person who we make a, a, a demigod. Any Anybody here that is uh, running uh, is held accountable to make sure that they their number one mo is to be looking up looking out for us first and foremost um and for um doing what's best for all canadians so so that's just like a general thing i mean every country there's you're never going to find somebody's perfect right like families yeah. are perfect so why should countries be perfect there's always going to be skeletons in the closet there's always going to be people who are making bad decisions there's always going to be somebody who thought they were getting away with something who gets caught like it's just the nature of human beings right like 
everybody's too much with this, you know, trying to find somebody who's completely void of imperfections. Never going to happen. But I would say that, you know, Canada's, I don't want to say close to perfect, but we're, we're, we're pretty, we're pretty great about, I think, where our, where our um, values lie and where our importances um, lie, I think. Uh, so, so that's, I think that's reflected. I think that's reflected in our, in our culture, you know, and, and, uh, and where we stand um, as a nation. So, yeah, I, I think that's very obvious in the storylines <laughs> through the um, through Paul's character of uh, of Benton. You know, I just think, you know, like obviously it was exaggerated with him being, you know, Dudley Do Right, but yeah, uh, you know, of course that's exaggerated. But uh, but I think that's also an exaggerated exaggeration form because of the lens in which we're seen through the eyes of others, right? So it's it's uh, so I think what we're great at is knowing what the general perception is and sort of turning that on its you know on its on its um, head and sort of and making light of it, you know, and and kind of going with it rather than fighting against it to prove a point otherwise. So I, I really love that Canada is able to to do everything in in a tongue in cheek sort of way and laugh at ourselves, you know. I mean, it feels to me, something you've said there just reminds me a bit of, I, I always refer to it as the sort of like Only Fools and Horses effect. I don't know if you're familiar with that show, but it's uh, one of our sitcoms over here. And it was very good at doing a very uh, tongue-in-cheek, very silly moment, and the next minute it would make you cry and vice versa. And I right. think Juicef did that very well. Like it would play up uh, some of the more kind of like um, the elements which are more open to be played up in the Canadian psyche, but then it would just take it very seriously. So you could play up how earnest... Um, that uh, that uh, Benton was, but then the next minute he would, uh, you know, that earnestness would play a very key role. And the same thing, sort of with Fran, you know, you could play out how kind of large her character was. Then you had this lovely heartfelt moment uh, between her and Ray, and then that yeah, was well, always and really I, sweet. I think part and parcel is that was the tone of the show, and it is a show, right? So yeah. you're, you're keeping in in context of the show. But I think that's also, it's a great point. I think that's also very reflective of, uh, of life, though, isn't it? I mean, life is like that. Life is one minute tragic and the next minute comedic and, and the next minute ironic and the next minute soulful and the next minute, you know, just reflective. Like that is, that's, that's life. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's all kind of part and parcel. That's great. Uh, thank you so much uh, for being so generous with your time and uh, for joining us tonight. It's been, or today, as the case may be for you. Um, yeah, just thank you. Uh, well, I always like to thank the, the stars of the show I love for giving us such great art, which we still celebrate to this day 20 years later. It's, it's just know, amazing. it's crazy, eh? Yeah, and, and I just think it's wonderful there's still kind of a convention which they do about it. I always think G-South is kind of like weird. Uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of Dog to Hear as well. And like mm -hmm. where that's gone a bit more back into the mainstream with the reboot, uh, yeah. it like, but it used to be this kind of secret handshake, which people who love Dog T would like go, Oh, you like that too. Let's have a great conversation yeah. about this. <laughs> and Due South right. is so that, like, you know, the people who love it and remember it, you know, and anyone who you mentioned to it who hasn't thought about it since it was on, like, Oh, that show, that was so much fun. I remember watching that. Yeah. And so just thank you for that show and, and for all those, My, those wonderful moments. Thank you for your interest in it and, and people like you who, you know, keep it keep its memory alive and, and understand the importance of it and, and that it resonates 
um, today. And, and I'll never forget, you know, uh, one of the things that I remember a couple of people mentioning to me, which of course I didn't pay attention to at the time, because when I was filming it initially, I hadn't had children yet. And I remember somebody saying to me, you know, it's one of the only shows that you can sit down and watch with your kids beginning to end. And I was like, huh, never clocked that. But yeah, that's true. And so I think now, of course, my kids are now 21 and 17. But at the time, you know, I, I wasn't a mom yet. So I wasn't paying attention to that. And I think that's also something that is very important. You know, now, 21 years later, I think that's also that says a lot that it could have such a strong impact and touch on such important topics and really investigate um, certain, um, you know, uh, uh, levels of humanity and relationships and topics while still being able to get through with your children. So I think that's, that is a, that is a, a fine uh, tightrope to walk, right? So I think that's pretty cool that we were able to do that as well. So uh I think it's great that people are commemorating it still and understanding that importance. And, uh, and I thank you for, for being one of those people. <laughs> what a great way to wrap it up. Uh, I, I've been to take the screen with me has, has been Ramona Milano. And uh, we, we usually like to round this off by uh, until next week, asking people to keep their compasses pointed due South by Southeast. So if you wouldn't <laughs> mind uh, just wrapping it up for us. What, what what do you want me to say? You, you've got to ask the audience until next week to keep their compasses pointed due south by southeast. Okay. Oh, my God. I hope I remember this. Okay. Until next week, please keep your compasses pointed due south by southeast. Bye.